Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Mind Love, episode 325. Today's episode is all about embracing change and growth, navigating life's cycles of order, disorder, and reorder. Our amygdala is still really fine-tuned to go off and to put us in this super instinctive emotional reactionary mode, even though most first world problems benefit from slowing down and being thoughtful, from not just running the other way or immediately fighting back, but from engaging and from discernment and from taking a few deep breaths. There's a scientific term called amygdala hijack, which essentially is when we get into such a reactionary mode that our amygdala just like hijacks our being. And this is when we act from a place of anger or fear, when we snap, when we do things in the moment that might feel really good, but very soon after we regret them and we feel really bad. So the question isn't how can we turn off the amygdala, because we can't, it's our genetic inheritance to have, but rather how can we feel the emotions associated with reactivity and almost use them as a mindfulness bell to say, oh, this is my amygdala. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. If this is your first time giving your mind a little love, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Mind love is a habit, and the more you give your mind that love and intention, the better you'll feel about yourself and your life. Plus, it's really a win-win because more subscribers means mind love attracts even more amazing guests to bring you their wisdom. So don't forget to subscribe. Let's face it, no matter how in tune you are with your emotions or how aligned you are spiritually, dealing with change can be tough. It's somewhat smoother when you're the one choosing the change, but even then, there are those little details that catch you off guard. Take 2020, for example. We made the leap to move to the mountains. The choice seemed pretty easy. Why keep shelling out insane amounts of money to live in LA, especially when everything was shut down and we couldn't even enjoy living there? Plus, we were planning on adding a baby to our family. The thought of raising a little one surrounded by nature rather than concrete was pretty appealing. Lower living costs, a bigger space for less money, it all just clicked. Cut to three weeks in, and I'm having Uber Eats withdrawals, craving the variety of our old grocery stores, and longing for my favorite yoga studio. And quite frankly, just missing the deep existential conversations from my LA people. Don't get me wrong. I love mountain life, and I've spent the last few years finding ways to curate anything I felt was missing so that I can have the best of both worlds. Isn't it kind of amusing how our minds work? We might be all in for a change, yet there's this tiny part of us that stubbornly holds on to the past. It's like our brain is playing this nostalgic tug-of-war with itself. And that's when we're the one calling the shots. When change is forced upon us, it can feel like our minds are throwing this epic toddler-style tantrum. I totally felt this with the daylight savings time change. I was like, seriously? 
Why can't we be like Arizona and just skip the whole thing? We even voted to ditch this time-changing circus, yet here we are, still messing with our clocks and our baby's sleep schedule because the man says so. Yeah, I'll admit it. I have my fair share of mental meltdowns, but I'm getting pretty good at bouncing back faster. The next step is to just be the observer. I don't know, instead of expecting to stop the mind rebellions altogether, maybe the best we can do is just watch them half amused and gently calm that inner toddler until our nerves decide to play nice again. Because here's the thing, the only constant is change. Let that sink in. The only constant is change. Everything is always changing, all the time. So why wouldn't we try to get better at dealing with change? Our situations change, the world changes, our bodies change, people change, we change. In fact, everything is always cycling through states of order, disorder, and reorder. And that sounds a little overwhelming, but guess what? If this cycle wasn't always occurring, nothing could get better either. So today we're going to learn to navigate this cycle with a little more grace. Our guest is Brad Stolberg. He's the best-selling author of Master of Change and The Practice of Groundedness. He writes for the New York Times and is on faculty at the University of Michigan's Graduate School of Public Health. So three key things we will learn are how to unlock the power of flexibility, the game-changing concept of Zanshin and why goals aren't everything, and the surprising secret to navigating life's ups and downs with ease. And if this is your first time giving your mind a little love, I have a few goodies for you. First, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And second, sign up for the Morning Mind Love. Think of it like a weekday oracle from your highest self to help you start each day with a positive focus. Plus, you'll get two gifts absolutely free, a 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you remember who you truly are. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up or text the word morning to 33777. And now let's welcome Brad Stolberg to the show. Hey, it's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. So what inspired your latest work into the helping people navigate change better? Well, I think that you write the book that you need to research and report and read. So very personally, in the past five, six years, I've undergone a whole lot of change in my own life, moved across the country from a big urban West Coast city to a small mountain town in North Carolina, had the birth of our first child and then our second child had major orthopedic surgery that took me out of a sport that was an outsized part of my identity, had my first solo book become a real hit and gave me the confidence to say I'm going to be a full-time writer, suffered a really painful family estrangement. So change both good, bad, ugly, and beautiful, all in this compressed period of time. It felt so intense and so rapid. Yet when I talked to other people in my life, friends, colleagues, they all said, oh yeah, that actually doesn't sound so unique, some version of me too. And then during the coronavirus pandemic, I distinctly remember seeing all of these headlines that were written in the spirit of when are things going to get back to normal? And there was something about that phrasing that just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And I wasn't sure what at the time, but it was enough to set off this intellectual exploration 
as to how we think about change, disorder, transition, disruption in our lives. In the beginning of your book, you talk about this idea of rugged flexibility. And I really liked that because, as you also mentioned, so many of our problems result from resisting change. And I don't think people always bring awareness to that. They're just like, oh, well, this is another thing that's happening. This is another thing that's happening. And I used to say, I used to actually be a little perplexed about my own reactions because I was always like, I love change. <laughs> I'm always changing. I'm always growing. And then something would happen. And I'm like, why do I feel like crap? And I'm like, because I hate change in this moment. What is going on? <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, it's much easier when I'm choosing it. But when it's choosing me, I'm like, um, no, let's keep it the way it is. So what do you mean by rugged flexibility? Well, it's probably my favorite construct in the book. And it is completely non-dual, meaning you have these two competing ideas. Ruggedness, which people often associate with being tough, determined, durable, gritty. And then flexibility, which people often associate with being soft and supple and bending easily without breaking. And what I found in my reporting is that individuals that are able to thrive and persist and even flourish throughout change, they're not rugged or flexible. They're both rugged and flexible. So they do believe in their agency and their ability to take actions that actually make a difference. And they do have parts of their self that are really determined. And yet they're also very adaptable and soft and supple and flexible. There's so many metaphors about being like water and being really fluid to navigate through obstacles and change. And I think these are all very apt and beautiful metaphors, but what they leave out is that any river has a bank. And without a bank, it would just be random water. And I think the bank is our sources of ruggedness, our boundaries, our values, the things that we do hold on tight to even amidst change. And then our flexibility is our capacity to adapt and be soft on everything else. So when we marry these terms, when we marry a sense of ruggedness and a sense of values and really knowing who we are with intense flexibility, we get rugged flexibility, which is like this kind of gritty, anti-fragile endurance that allows us to work with change. When I think of that concept, what comes to mind is yoga, actually. I'm a big into yoga. I've been doing it for like 16 years now. And I remember learning at one point that there is a downside of being overly flexible if you don't have the strength to support that as well. And so like it'll happen with babies sometimes. I have a friend whose baby, I don't, there's a word for it, but it's like hyper flexible. And so you can end up injuring yourself because it'll only bend so far before it creates damage without those supporting muscles giving it strength. So that was what came to mind for me. I love that. And there are so many physical practices that are also rooted in spiritual tradition. So I'm thinking of the ancient martial art Aikido, which very similarly to yoga, puts a lot of emphasis on building both strength and flexibility. Because like you said, if you have too much of the former, then you're rigid. But if you have too much of the latter, then you're unstable. So there really is like this universal wisdom, I think, to, to marrying ruggedness and flexibility. You told the story in your book um, about psychologists Jerome Bruner and Leo Postman highlighting how people often struggle with change, even when it's as simple as playing cards. Can you share that with us? Because I just found it fascinating. So this is a study that took place nearly 60 years ago. 
And these two social psychologists had individuals flip through a deck of cards. And within the deck, they placed what they called anomalous cards. So a black six of hearts, even though hearts are normally red, or a red four of spades, even though spades are normally black. And they timed how long it took study participants to identify and realize the anomalous cards. And participants that were really flexible and open to disorder, disruption, and change, they identified the cards really quickly, and they just got on with the experiment. Whereas those individuals that were really resistant to change and disruption, it took them 30 times as long to identify the anomalous cards. And there are these great quotes in the study of people saying, this can't be real. I don't even know what game I'm playing. Is something wrong with me? People were having legitimate identity crises over anomalous cards. And what Brunner and Postman concluded is essentially that change can be really discombobulating and that the longer it takes us to accept change, the more distress we feel as a result. I just went through this experience and... It's so silly in hindsight, but I have a, a two and a half year old and he went to the skate park on his bike with my husband and came back with a chipped tooth. <laughs> and mind you, there's something about the way his front two teeth poke through his smile. It's like one of my favorite features of his. And so when he came back at first, I just breezed right through it. Like it was nothing. And I was like, man, that was a really powerful mom response, right? But then he went to bed at night and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I got really emotional and I was like, I'm never going to see those two teeth the same way. And I was like having to talk to my husband about it. He was feeling worse about it because he was the one in charge of him at that time. And I was just like, why is this so difficult for me? And and I had to do a whole meditation around it and realize there was something about me that I was like, okay, it's not like my kid, like I'm not trying to own him and his appearance. It's not a big deal. I'm so glad nothing else happened. But it, it just this tiny little sliver of his tooth missing sent me off the deep end for like three days. <laughs> like I had to do journaling activities around it. And just when you think you're getting better at it, it's like something comes and it's as Bram Das puts it, God in drag, just testing me, <laughs> showing me where I can still work on things. Yeah, I mean, that's an anomalous card. Uh, you weren't expecting your kid to come back with uh, three quarters or half of a tooth <laughs> that day. And um, I think that navigating change and rugged flexibility, it is an ongoing practice. It is not uh, an insight that you just have and then you're done. It is not a switch that you can flip. I think that the goal isn't to not freak out when these instances happen. It's to be aware that you're freaking out and for that freak out to be a little bit shorter and a little bit less intense, uh, and then to have some tools to, to move through it. It's interesting. You mentioned when you, you sat in, in you reflected and meditated around it in this notion of you don't own your kid or their appearance came up. And that directly relates to this notion of having versus being in when you have this having orientation, it's just that you feel like you have something or you own it. And we speak so naturally. I have a kid. I have a job. I have a house. I have this income. I have this watch, this piece of jewelry, this relationship, whatever it may be. Uh, but when we define ourselves by what we have, we inherently become kind of fragile because everything that we have eventually can change, be taken away, shift, 
And if we cling really tightly to anything as it is, then, then we end up suffering when that happens. Whereas if we can define ourselves more by what the psychoanalyst Eric Fromm called a being orientation, where we can be in love, we can be curious about our job, our essential core qualities, then it becomes a little bit less fragile to change. So it was just interesting too, to hear you in your reflection, talk about like having this thing, but that's such a natural feeling for parents. Like you don't want your kids to grow up when they're adorable and cute. I mean, you do want them to grow up, but like you also kind of want to cling tight to their toddlerhood or their infancy or those two adorable teeth, even though your logical mind knows that your child will be just fine, um, it still hurts. And I think that's okay too. We have to give ourselves permission to work through these, these small pains. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning. It's true with purpose, with relationships, with higher versions of yourself, and it's also true for hiring. The best way to search is actually just to match with Indeed. Indeed is your one-stop hiring platform with millions of job seekers visiting every month, and their powerful matching engine helps you find quality candidates fast. Plus, Indeed lets you schedule interviews, screen applicants, and message candidates all in one place. But Indeed isn't just about speed. They also deliver quality. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. I love Indeed because it makes hiring so much easier. I'm all about alignment in all areas of my life, and that includes people I hire to work in my business. So I need a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. And that's Indeed. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine gets smarter the more you use it, learning from your preferences and over 140 million qualifications. Plus, I love that I can do all my hiring in one place. It's just one less thing to keep track of between all of the other things. So join over 3.5 million businesses worldwide who rely on Indeed to find great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to Indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I'm reminded of something you also mentioned about differences with Western and Eastern cultures and how 
a study by, I'm probably going to butcher this, but Mutsumi Umai <laughs> and Deidre Gettner, they showed that Western participants tend to see objects first, where Eastern participants focus on the field or environment. And it's funny because I was recently listening to an old audio from Alan Watts, and he was talking about Taoism. And he was just sharing how like the difference is like, if uh, an American painter were to be painting a fisherman on a bank. It would be a big up-close thing of the fisherman. Whereas in Eastern cu cultures, sometimes you have to look pretty hard. It's like finding Waldo <laughs> in this. It's like mostly the environment. And a while ago, I I interviewed someone on this philosophy called the Headless Way. And it's basically just this mindset where you get get into the mindset of like not being in your body as much as being the environment. So that's something I've been working on more. It's like, okay, well, it, yeah, it's not me here that then just lost this thing or me here with my kid with this chipped tooth or whatever it is. It's like, this is me now. Everything that I am is in my awareness right now is a part of me at this moment. And for me, instead of me moving through the world, instead of and thinking of it more as like the world moving through me, my awareness moving through me, that's just been a little trick that I've used recently to help me navigate change better. Because if I am the environment, I don't want it all to stay the same. It's like, well, what next? Let, let's see what else I can become in this moment. Ooh, I love that. Yeah. So that part of the book explores the difference between what anthropologists call uh, an independent way of being in the world or an interdependent way. You're right. They find that people that were born and raised in the West, they tend to be more independent. So separate from their environments, influencing autonomous. And people that were raised in the East, they tend to be more interdependent. So they view themselves in relationship to their environment in a small part of things that are bigger. And what's important to know is that neither lens is better or worse. They're both neutral. And what I argue in the book is that actually the most skillful thing to do is be able to use both of those lenses. So when you are holding on too tight or you're feeling kind of neurotic or rigid or you're really struggling to accept change, uh, adopting that interdependent lens and that kind of environmental awareness of life moving through you can be really helpful and really softening. And it can actually help you take skillful action or at the very least get out of your own way. But there are other times when you want to flex that independent lens. When you are at a red light and it turns green, you know, you want to be the person in that car to hit the gas pedal. And that's an extreme example. But if your kid gets sick and you need to take them to the hospital or when you're doing creative work, I think there's this beautiful dance in particular in creative work where you're interdependent and associative and the ideas are coming through you. But then you also have to tap into the independent person that is going to record the podcast or actually write the book. So I think it's another one of these examples of ruggedness being the independent lens and then flexibility being the interdependent lens and skillful action means holding both at the same time. One of the things you talk about is it's a, a scientific concept or of, of progress, order, disorder, and reorder. Can you elaborate on how that cycle applies to our personal lives and adapting to change? Yeah, so we're we're always going through these cycles of of order, disorder, and reorder. In the scientific community, it's called allostasis. In management science, they call it freezing, unfreezing, refreezing. The Franciscan friar Richard Rohr calls it the universal wisdom pattern. 
So I love when concepts are supported by everything from biological sciences to spiritual teachers to management professors, because that tells me that like there's some degree of truth. So that's a lot of prelude to essentially saying that throughout our life, we have stability, and then something happens and we lose that stability. And then we regain stability, but that new stability, it's always somewhere new. And this is how we grow from change. This is how we adapt to change. This is how we go through our own personal evolution. However, between order and reorder, there's always a disorder. There's always that middle phase. And it's the middle phase that's really hard. This is where it can feel like we're going to pieces or we're losing our ground or the world beneath us is really shaking for, for big changes. And for small changes, it can feel like a pebble in our shoe or just kind of a source of anxiety. I'm thinking again of the experience that you shared with your kid's tooth. I wonder if some of what's underneath that is like also just like your kid growing up, like being out in the world and like injuring themselves. And you will get to a new stability. It might take a few hours. It might take to a few days. But now like you probably have a slightly different relationship with how you think about parenting your kid and what it means and their age and their ability to go out in the world and exert their will and do great things, but also hurt themselves. And I think just becoming a mature adult is being open to constantly going through these patterns of order, disorder, reorder. The bigger ones that we all face in our life are injury and illness, uh, grief and loss, big failures and things that we care about, um, and also very happy milestones. So marriage, having kids, starting a new job, having a great success. These are all disorder events where we come out the other side, the same but different. And then day to day, we face these all the time, right? This is the kid that's homeschooled from sick, or excuse me, the kid that's sick home from school, uh, the dog that has diarrhea in the middle of the room, the internet connection that doesn't work, just like these little small disorder events that shift our day in often imperceptible ways. But I think the moral of this whole story is that we think of change as something that happens to us, like this one-off event that happens to us, or that we institute, whereas change is just synonymous with reality. Like there is not a single part of life that isn't somewhere in that cycle of order, disorder, reorder. Ram Dass says, everything is grace. <laughs> and that's what I try to look at it. Like, okay, what is this teaching me? I'm reminded of slacklining, actually. Mm. Anyone that I know who has ever tried to step on a slack line, it's funny because their first reaction is, I can never do this. Like their foot is jiggling like crazy. Like it looks like their leg is seizing. <laughs> and I went through that too. And I found out that... It's just repetition. Like I spent a day at the beach, kept getting on, and eventually my legs stopped doing that. Now I don't slackline very often anymore. I have kids. They're not very patient when I'm setting it up. So it is what it is. But when I get on, I still can just step on. And it's never like that first time. Yeah, I'm not as good as I was before, but I'm not shaking uncontrollably. I'm like, oh, oh, got to get my balance. Here it is. And I can walk across it within a couple of seconds. And even when I look back to different friends, uh, a good friend has had a cancer diagnosis a, a couple years back. And good news is she's cancer free now. But it radically changed her approach to life. She has two kids, but now she's like hiking the Grand Canyon with friends. She's living her best life. And it it woke her up to that kind of present moment. This all could go wake up with gratitude every day is a gift type mentality that she's able to carry with her so much longer than she carried with her the the suffering and the fear. 
What a beautiful story. Um, and it sounds like your friend is a very strong person to, to be able to do that. There's that saying, never let a crisis go to waste. And I think in my framework, it would just say, never let a period of disintegration or disorder not lead to some kind of insight or, or growth. I think it's also helpful just to have language for these cycles, because then you can take a area of your life and kind of identify where in that pattern you are. And if you're in the order phase, you can enjoy it, but you can expect that it won't be like that forever. If you're in the disorder phase, you can give yourself some solace and say like, yeah, this is really hard. I'm, I'm going through disorder. And what can I do to shape reorder? What can I control versus what can't I? And how can I be patient with myself? And then if you're in the reorder phase, following a disorder event, you can ask yourself, well, how do I want this reorder to look? And what is in my power to forge the, the future and the new stability in the way that I want it to be? That's the very skillful, mature adult way to handle it. I think the trap that so many of us fall into is just the opposite. And it's trying to get back to where we were before the disorder event. Um, it's endlessly fighting it. I mean, this is the example of any new parent that like thinks they're preparing for kids, but then they realize that kids are so much harder than they thought. Um, and they compare their old sleep or their old relationship or their old ability to have autonomy or their old work or their old time with friends, all of these things to what they have now with kids. And all that you're doing is firing second, third, fourth arrows at yourself Versus just accepting that, all right, like this is going to be a disorder period is the family unit adapts to having an infant or a toddler or a teenager, whatever it is. Uh, and it's not to say that the new stability won't be better or worse. It just is. It's neutral, but it's new. And I think when we cling to the old is when we get in trouble. It's that inescapability trigger that you talk about, which I love. I'm it's basically a trigger to accept your new reality as it is. What would happen if you did that? <laughs> Play with that idea. Something I've done, but I love having, again, a name for it. It's like, oh, inescapability trigger. <laughs> I got to bring that back. Yeah. And it's so, it's such a paradox because when we say that something is inescapable, it kind of sounds like we're giving up or we're surrendering. But in fact, we're empowering ourselves to be in the new situation and do something productive with it. Whereas if we're denying our reality, then we're never really living it. And if we're never really living it, we can't be working through it or on it. You also teach uh, a concept called tragic optimism. Can you explain what that is and how it differs from conventional notions of positivity or optimism? It's probably my favorite concept in the book. Um, so it was coined by Viktor Frankl, another 20th century psychoanalyst, Holocaust survivor, philosopher, uh, really just polymath thinker on human nature. And what Frankl said is that human existence, even the most average human existence, is going to have inevitable suffering. Uh, we're made of flesh and bone, so we're going to feel physical pain. We have the ability to make plans, and our plans don't always go as we want, so we're going to feel frustration. And everything that we have is going to change, and eventually we will lose things that we love, including other people. And he said that these are the inevitable tragedies of being a human, and burying your head in the sand or denying them or trying to numb yourself to avoid them is not the pathway to a fulfilling life. So we have to accept that being a human is tragic. However... At the same time, we have to hold on to this idea that even in spite of that, we can cultivate a hopefulness and an optimism that we can carry forward with. 
And it is essentially saying not toxic positivity or not being a Pollyanna, but the opposite, realizing that life is short and impermanence is often a bitch. And because of that, saying, man, I need to be as optimistic and hopeful and positive while I'm here. And I think that um, it really is in many ways, like the work of a wisdom practice is just to accept the tragedy and to show up with as much optimism as we can and, and to have both at the same time. There are these stories of of real highly skilled spiritual teachers and leaders. I'm thinking of like the Dalai Lama or Thich Nhat Hanh that within the same hour can go from just genuine weeping about a humanitarian crisis or about the loss of a loved one or friend to taking a bite out of a cookie and just having the biggest smile in the world on their face. And I mean, I think that developing like an emotional aperture that's wide enough to hold it all, or at least working towards that is a really noble goal. I am reminded of, I think it was an episode of Joe Rogan, actually, but it's a, a tool that my husband and I use pretty often now because there's those moments when your kids are just like being impossible and it's like, oh my gosh, like, <laughs> like I'm going to explode. But Joe Rogan or one of his guests proposed this idea of like, okay, imagine you're 85 years old. And all of a sudden, a magic genie comes and zips you back to this moment, but you only have five minutes, five minutes to be with your kids again when they're little like this. It doesn't matter if they were currently biting you. You would be like, oh my goodness, what do you need? Like, I, I'm going to cherish this. And, and it's so fleeting. It's hard to realize that in the moment. And I'm not even just talking about kids. Life in general is so fleeting. The amount of people, super wealthy people that I talk to, where they're still like looking back on their golden years when like them and their husbands or wives were like first building their business, living out of a shoebox apartment. They had nothing. The golden bachelor was just saying, he's like, yeah, my wife and I, when we used to invite our parents over because we knew they'd bring groceries, those were the good old days. <laughs> it's just those perspective shifts are so powerful because you truly don't know what you have till it's gone. Yeah, I don't often agree with Joe Rogan, but I absolutely agree with him on that. And I think that it is such a beautiful exercise is just to project yourself in the future and ask like what you would give to be back in this moment doing this thing for a minor frustration. The answer is almost always it, it turns into something to savor or at least to soften up around. I think going into the future can also help us navigate uncertainty and make wise decisions because when you're in the middle of a really emotionally charged situation, it can be hard to see clearly. But if you can imagine yourself 40 years down the road, looking back on current you, and you can ask like, well, what would wiser, older me be proud of? That can be really informative as to what to do in the face of uncertainty. Another concept that comes up a lot in as it relates to change is just how our expectations affect the way we deal with it. And one of the things you talk about is homeostasis versus allostasis. Can you explain the difference? Yeah. So homeostasis is this older, more conventional model of change that, among many other things, says that our expectations are not important to how we experience the world. And allostasis is a newer, more accurate model for change that, among many other things, says that actually our expectations are hugely important for how we experience the world. And the example that is often used, it's an extreme one, but it elucidates the point, is that if somebody is at a grocery store and they someone walks up to them and like punches them, the amount of cortisol stress hormone that they're gonna have 
the amount of actual physical pain they're going to feel, the amount of trauma they might foresee is quite high. Whereas if that same person was in a kickboxing class and someone punched them, same punch, same person, same spot, they experience hardly any cortisol, they experience less subjective pain, and they won't report trauma. But it's the same punch. It's literally the same physical force. The only thing that's different is in one context, you're not expecting it. And in another context, you are. And again, it's an extreme example, but the point is that our expectations have an enormous impact on how we feel reality. Another example for any runners that are listening is if you go into a marathon expecting that mile 20 is going to feel easy, well, when you get to mile 20, you are going to quit the race. You will call an ambulance. You'll think that something is horrendously wrong. Whereas if you go into a marathon knowing that mile 20 is going to feel really hard, well, when you get there, you'll be prepared and you might not like it, but you'll embrace it. You'll have no problem finishing the race. Same body, same training, same mile 20. Only thing that differs is the expectation. So when it comes to change, I think where we often get into trouble is that we hold on to our old expectations of how things should be or were supposed to be, and we don't update them to how they actually are. So when we talk about updating our expectations, walk me through your process of, of something specific happening, not yeah. working out the way, and then like... So, so let's do it with the Delta variant for the COVID-19 pandemic, because it's probably a fairly universal experience. I'll be curious if you had this or people in your community did. So about a year and a half into the pandemic, summer of 2021, cases across America and most of Europe had essentially plummeted to near zero. And it seemed like life was going to be back to normal. Uh, we were going to restaurants, going inside other people's houses, not worried about wearing masks. It, it really felt like, wow, like this terrible thing. We as a society, the collective, we are on the other side of it. And that started in June and it went through early September. And then the Delta variant came and it was the ultimate gut punch. Even though we were objectively better off than we were at the start of the pandemic, right? We had therapeutics. We knew more about how it spread. There were vaccines, all these things. It still felt in many ways even worse. Why? Because we had this collective expectation that like COVID was over. So in the moment, how did I deal with it? What was the skillful way to deal with it? I mean, what I did is what everyone else did. I felt terrible and <laughs> hadn't written the book yet. I was like despairing and resisting it and saying, you know, this can't be real. Maybe the data is wrong. Um, the skillful thing to do, which is where I eventually landed, is just to say, like, this is what's happening right now. Here's what I can control. Here's what I can't. I'm doing the best that I can. I'm frustrated because my expectation was X, Y, Z, uh, but it turned out actually to be A and B, and I need to live in, in, in reality. Uh, and it's very hard to do. It's also so hard to do in our professional lives when we have like real high expectations or aspirations for a project or, you know, a podcast is going to be top 10 downloads or a book is going to hit all the bestseller lists, whatever it is. And then it doesn't happen. Uh, again, back to Frankel's like suffering, you know, we can have hopes and our hopes are often not met. So when that happens, do we let that bring us down for an hour, for a day, for a week or for a year? And I think, again, back to like tragic optimism and non-dual thinking, it's okay for these things to bring us down. We just don't want that down period to be longer than it needs to be. So I really think it's about just saying like, this is what's happening right now. What do I control? What don't I control? How can I do the best I can? How can I acknowledge my old expectations, maybe mourn the loss of them, but then ultimately start seeing the world clearly so that I can do something about it? 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard, and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says, <laughs> and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small, and when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com mindlove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash mindlove. And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. It's a zero-sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams, Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs, all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. I didn't even really pay any attention when the second variant came around. I am, after the first one, I immediately moved to a town that didn't pay any attention to it. <laughs> so we just came here, never really heard about it again. Sometimes I'd visit my family in the Bay Area and they'd all be worried in masks and I'd be like, oh yeah, this is still happening. <laughs> that was really how I handled the whole thing. But I have tragic optimism when it comes to my health because the placebo works so well. And so this has been my go-to for about 10 years. When sickness is going around, I'm just like, I'm not getting sick. It might go through me for like a day or two, but I just don't get sick. And it's because I tell myself all the time, I don't get sick. <laughs> so I'm holding strong with that. Did not want to be around a bunch of fear of people, other people. And it worked out really well for me. <laughs> I'm glad that you had that experience. <laughs> Uh, another concept that you brought up that I really loved was the concept of Zanshin. Mm. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, so uh, Zanshin is this term from Aikido, um, which like yoga, I think is a very rugged and flexible uh, uh, discipline. And it essentially is a soft awareness that sees not only the target, but everything around the target. And what this allows you to do is when you are fixating on a goal and you soften your view, you can see opportunities that might be on the side or other paths to get there or obstacles that might otherwise blindside you. Uh, and you can be aware of them. And as a result of that awareness, uh, you can do something about them. And this is very different than target fixation which is when you get so tunnel vision and so fixated on a target that even if you achieve it, you barrel right into it and you miss the entire journey along the way. And I think that it is a real, like a silent pandemic of our time. And I say that a little bit as an overstatement, but a real problem is this just constant target fixation. I'm going to go to school and get all A's. Then I'm going to go to college. Then I'm going to graduate. Then I'm going to get a job. Then I'm going to get married. Then I'm going to have kids. Then I'm going to move to the suburbs or in your case to some small funky town. Then I'm going to grow my business. Then I'm going to retire. Then I'm going to move on the ocean. And it's okay to have plans. But if we're just like so fixated on the next thing, you follow that line all the way down and you get to the end of your life and it's like, man, like did I even live or was I just chasing the next goal? And I think Zanshin is a really good concept to counter this. Because it acknowledges that goals and targets are important, but all the life is lived in the pursuit of the goal, not the accomplishment. So how can we soften up as we pursue goals and make sure that we're having the experience along the way? Mountains are wonderful metaphors for this, right? Like, yes, you want to get to the peak of the mountain, and without the peak, there is no climb, but the entire experience is on the climb. Uh, and I think that that's so important for us to remember in any big goal and any metaphorical mountain that we're, uh, we're trying to summit. I love learning about what's going on in the brain when things are happening. It's been really helpful for me in overcoming different addictions in my life and really anything. And I think it's because before I understand what's actually happening, there's a lot of self-blame because I, you think, well, why can't I let this go? Why can't I do this? Why is this so difficult for me? But then when you start to understand, oh, this is just a natural process of the brain. Usually the brain's actually trying to protect me in a way or two. <laughs> so you you end up having a little bit, I end up having a little more self-compassion. And you talk about the role of the amygdala in our response to change. Can you explain how it influences our reactions in modern times, especially in situations that aren't life-threatening? <laughs> yeah. So our, our amygdala is uh, uh, a part of our brain that is often referred to as like the fear center. And it's a super important part of our brain. It's why you and I are here as humans today, because we evolved to have a really sensitive amygdala. Uh, why? Because our ancient ancestors, primates out on the savanna, if there was a mountain lion or a venomous snake, uh, they needed a very quick reaction to jolt through their entire body and say, like, this is bad, run away. And um, that's a powerful reactionary response. And without it, our species never would have evolved to get where we are. However, in today's world, very rarely are we being chased by mountain lions or venomous snakes. There are often a lot of what I call paper tigers. So they look like real tigers, but they're actually paper. They can't hurt us. Yeah, our amygdala is still really fine-tuned to go off and to put us in this super 
instinctive, emotional, reactionary mode, uh, even though most first world problems benefit from slowing down and being thoughtful, from not just running the other way or immediately fighting back, uh, but from engaging and from discernment and from taking a few deep breaths. There's a scientific term called amygdala hijack, which essentially is when we get into such a reactionary mode that our amygdala just like hijacks our being. And this is when we act from a place of anger or fear, when we snap, uh, when we do things in the moment that might feel really good, but very soon after we regret them and we feel really bad. So the question isn't how can we turn off the amygdala, because we can't, it's our genetic inheritance to have, but rather how can we feel the emotions associated with reactivity and almost use them as a mindfulness bell to say, oh, this is my amygdala. In your case, like naming the actual brain region helps. Like, ooh, my amygdala is getting hijacked. That is just my evolutionary inheritance. And it means now would be a really good time to take five deep breaths before I do the next thing. Or now would be a good time to leave this situation and come back to it two minutes later. Or now would just be a good time to ask myself, is this actually a threat to my safety? Or is this just ancient hardwiring that thinks this is a threat to my safety? And simply by pausing and going through any of these exercises, we create some space between ourselves and what's happening. And in that space, we can get out of reactionary mode and into a more responsive, discerning mode. Uh, the heuristic that I like to use for this is two Ps versus four Ps. So when we're in reactionary amygdala mode, we panic and then we pummel ahead. But when we're in a more thoughtful, um, higher self or wise mode, uh, we do the four Ps. So we pause and we gather ourselves. We process what's happening. We make a plan. So again, I sound like a broken record, but it's important. We ask ourselves, what do we control about this situation and what don't we? And how can we focus on what we do control? And only then do we proceed. So the four Ps literally like elongates or spaces out the process between stimulus and response. Yeah, it, that's I think the most helpful thing is just having literally anything else to think about in those moments. You can see when people are in tunnel vision. I started noticing this after I interviewed somebody on anxiety and she was um, an NLP practitioner and gave me this really cool trick that when you're, you notice you're in tunnel vision, just put your arms out kind of like you're on the cross and wiggle your fingers to where you see them in your periphery. And just that expands your vision and it'll take you out of tunnel vision mode. And it's funny because now that was really helpful when I'm dealing with it, but it's even more helpful for some reason from that moment on when people are in tunnel vision, like, oh, that dad's yelling at his kid. You can see them <laughs> hone in like a laser on a little child. It's like just anything else to think about it. And so having these tools, um, I know a lot of people have mentioned things like, it's just so hard to think about in the moment. But I've found that I don't necessarily need the tool to pop up immediately. I need any sort of trigger that will get me to pause. So it could be one of a hundred different tools where I'm like, I'm about to do this. Anything else? Anything else? <laughs> think of a yeah. bird tweeting first, then <laughs> think of a tool. <laughs> yeah. And, and what I go to here, um, just based on like a lot of good research, is affect labeling. So it's not even a tool. It's simply labeling your emotion. So saying, I am feeling angry. I'm feeling heat rise through my chest. I'm feeling emptiness in my stomach. I'm feeling rage. I'm clenching my fist. I'm feeling tightness. Just naming the thing creates some space between you and it. Because once you name it, you no longer are it. You're no longer fused with it. 
Um, and to your point, anything to create a little bit of space. And for parents out there, this is a wonderful skill in parenting for you as the adult, but also to work on with your kids. And kids might not be able to name an emotion with the same level of clarity that you can, but there are age-appropriate ways of doing this. So we often compare emotions to weather. And when our son, when our, our, our baby daughter like takes our son's toy away, and I can see he gets so angry, I say, ooh, are you feeling like thunder or lightning? And then after he calms down, we'll say, oh, did the sun come back out? And it's just a way to help teach kids that, hey, emotions kind of are like the weather. And they can move through us and we don't have to latch on to them. That's something that gave me a lot of compassion for single moms because I find that I naturally affect label having my husband there because something will happen and I'll one of us will take a deep breath, we'll make eye contact and it's like, I am feeling a lot. I'm feeling pretty angry right now. I'm going to step over here. And we actually had a conversation the other night with just having each other. It, it forces us to kind of do that process. But I was reminded when I used to have a really difficult boss, and this was when I was single, and I would read things. <laughs> a lot of the same things I'm reading about parenting, I had to read to <laughs> handle this this boss. And one of those things was, think of your boss as a giant toddler. It'll help you handle. And it was like one of those like tech guys that's like, you watch like the Uber documentary and Steve Jobs and how they're kind of crazy. He's one of those figures. And uh, I would text message myself. <laughs> as like my little pause where I'm like, this is crazy. And it started as keeping a log because I wanted to just like make sure if anything happened, I had everything logged. But it started to be my own like journaling process, 413. Yeah. <laughs> Joe we punched a, a wall. <laughs> right. Well, it's kind of like, you know, and, and you think of like some, just like some leaders, I'm going to the the former president, the most recent former president who are just like big toddlers. But there are a lot of bosses like that. And the first thing I'd say is if you can, like, don't work for Donald Trump, don't work for a boss that's like a big toddler. But then the second thing that I'd say is remember that a kid isn't a 55-year-old man. It's a kid. And we can have a different bar for our kids because they're not little adults. They're kids. And I think like that, that has been really helpful for me. So like, in my, and I'm not saying there's a right or wrong way to do this, but in my own practice, I no longer suffer adults that are like toddlers unless I absolutely have to. Like there's a hard boundary. I don't need that in my life. Same. But with my kids, I need to go in the opposite direction and remind myself, no, they're not little adults. They're kids. And my job is to create space for them to essentially throw a Donald Trump like tantrum if they need to and be the safe support that's holding space. And I think too often we don't tolerate that from our kids and we do from adults when it should be the total opposite. One of our affirmations is my my child is not a tiny adult. He is a toddler acting his age. He's a toddler oh, that's so acting good. his age. But that's so good. Because there's because every moment is a parent, and I'm not perfect. I'm a big believer in like the good enough parent. Um, but the moments that I regret are when I'll raise my voice. And there wasn't a legitimate safety concern, so I didn't need to. And then the immediate look of like fear on my child's face because we try to never raise our voice. And it's never worth raising your voice over. And I think in those moments, like your mantra is really helpful. And as a parent to, again, remember, like just be good enough. Like raising your voice once or twice a week is not going to scar your child for life. You're just a normal human doing the best you can too. 
Yes. They, we remind ourselves, because I've had those moments where I'm like, I just feel guilty <laughs> about this. And, and we're always talking each other up like, yeah, but kids are also the epitome of living in the moment. So it's how you handle it afterwards, like showing them. And this is so true with anybody. I found that the biggest benefits to having kids is that it really forces you to have these interpersonal skills that literally work on every single person. And so going back afterwards and saying like, oh, I'm sorry, mommy did not handle that well. I should have done this. Like, thank you, whatever, however you bond in those ways, but just owning up to not handling something well. You can do that with other people. With the validating their feelings first, because they're not going to logic in the middle of a uh, meltdown. I'm trying to reframe the word tantrum. Dysregulation. He's dysregulated. Oh, yeah, that, 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 that is the right way to say it. <laughs> yes, he's dysregulated right now, not having a tantrum. And it gives me compassion. But that's the same thing for other people. Like adults have tantrums. We just don't label it that way. But what if everyone always gave us grace? Like, oh, instead of Melissa's being a huge bitch right now, it's like, she's dysregulated right now. Just give her some time. And when she needs a hug, we'll be there. <laughs> but there's this other concept that you talk about um, creating rugged boundaries. And we talked about rugged flexibility, but I know that I actually just pulled my audience and found out so many of us struggle with boundaries. So I love this idea of rugged boundaries. What are they? All right. So back to this metaphor of a river for identity. And we want to be flowing. And I firmly believe that identity is one of these paradoxes where like, yes, we really are here, yet we're also a process of becoming. And both those things are empirically true. There's no way around it. But if you think of identity like a river, again, a river has to have a bank. Otherwise, it's just random water. And I think that the bank are, in my construct, are rugged boundaries. So these are the things that you will not be flexible on. Um, these are the things that hold your container. These are your key sources of strength, your values that you will not compromise on. And you can be really flexible in how you apply those values. You can be flexible on everything else in your life, but you've got to have some values um, that make you who you are, that then become your boundaries. Um, so examples of these values could be kindness, compassion, strength, wisdom, intellect, relationships, love, whatever they are. And when you get to an uncertain situation, there's a big change, you can ask yourself, well, what would it look like to practice my values in this situation? Or in the case of interpersonal boundaries, if you are deciding when you need to put a boundary between you and someone else, you can say, is this person asking that I compromise on my values? Or are this other person's values so opposite mine that being in relationship with them just puts me in conflict with my own values. And I want to be careful because we're never going to see eye to eye with someone. Like every loved one and good friend in my life I disagree with, sometimes strongly about things. But if there are true irreconcilable values differences between you and another person, between you and an organization, um, I argue in the book that like those are boundaries that you actually want to have pretty firmly and ruggedly. Um, because otherwise, your your river that is yourself, it's just going to be random water. There's going to be no shape to it. Uh, but those values and those boundaries, they give you shape over time. Another thing you mentioned, which I had never heard before, is that there are benefits to being a generalist as it relates to this concept of a fluid sense of self. And I wanted to bring this up because since adulthood, really, so many people have told me like, 
just different things about, especially when you're building a business, niching down, becoming a master of one thing. And I've just always had my hands in a ton of different things. And uh, although I did find out what is the, whatever the phrase people use quite often is actually wrong. I'm going to ignore it because I can't think of it at all. But <laughs> 10,000 hour, 10, 10, hours? No, it was something like, um, oh, jack of all trades, master of none. That actually continues to go on. And it's like, you I want to be a master of some. It's probably like jack of many trades, master of some is probably like the most like research uh, based phrase. Um, <laughs> yes. Because it is good to be a generalist and it is good to go broad and it is good to have multiple sources of meaning in your life and parts of your identity because it makes you less fragile to change because you like become this diverse, robust whole. However, you also want to go deep in some things. Uh, because the things that you go deep in are the things that you will find mastery and competence in, in fulfillment, in meaning. So it's kind of this balance of like having multiple baskets into which you can place your eggs, but then not being scared to put all your eggs in a basket so long as you have others available um, to you. That's like my little nice tidy metaphor. In the research literature, they call this explore and then exploit. So you want to explore a bunch of things. And then after a period of time of exploration, when you find a couple that you're really interested or you're good at, then you want to exploit them. Like you want to double down. And then after a few years of doubling down, you want to zoom back out and explore again, find your couple areas, and then double down and exploit. So another example of non-dual thinking, it's not like just focus on one thing or just do everything. It's kind of a little bit of both. Both things are true at once. Derek Sivers recently wrote a book and I was interviewing him a couple of weeks ago. And it's really cool the way his book's written because one chapter will be all about like this one rule to live by. Then the next chapter will be seemingly the opposite rule, but why that's the only thing to live by. And by the end of it, you kind of realize that's the thing. These are all tools to kind of gift you, get you out of different moments. That phrase I was trying to think of is everyone always quotes, a jack of all trades is a master of none. And it's like to tell people, you know, go deeper. But the full quote is, but oftentimes better than a master of one. And most people don't even know the second half of that, that sentence. They just go, oh, jack of all trades is a master of none. And I'm and that was healing for me when I learned the full thing. <laughs> it's like the, the ultimate like flipping of a quote to butcher its meaning and represent <laughs> yes. the exact opposite. Well, we talk a lot about kind of taking these everyday moments and turning them into learning opportunities. But you brought up this really good point. Your therapist had offered you a perspective that not everything has to be meaningful or lead to growth. And I want to talk about that because I think it can relieve a lot of people. You know, they're like, I don't think like this all the time. And then they can end up in a shame spiral and beat themselves up even more. So how did that insight change your outlook on your struggles with things like OCD and depression? Sometimes things can just suck. And like, that's it. And the personal growth or the meaning is just realizing that it's okay for things to just suck sometimes. Talk about the ultimate catch-22 is, yes, you want to have a growth mindset and you want to practice gratitude and you want to find meaning in everything. But sometimes in life, things happen and meaning won't be available and growth won't be available and you can't feel grateful for what you're going through, at least not in the moment. And during those periods, it's okay to release from all of that and just focus on being kind to yourself and getting through. And what's fascinating is that when we get to the other side of these really harrowing experiences, we do tend to look back on them and derive some meaning or growth or wisdom from them. 
But when we're in the middle of them, that often feels impossible. In trying to contrive or force meaning or growth, it just backfires. Because then you say, like, not only is what I'm going through terrible, but I'm not even good at being terrible. Like, I'm not even good at being depressed. I'm not even good at grieving. Instead of just realizing that there are parts of life that, like, they just suck, especially when you're in them. And um, not everything has to be meaningful or a source of growth all the time. I bring this up quite often, but in my early 20s, I ended up volunteering for the Suicide and Crisis Counseling Center. And I, we had to go through a pretty extensive training to be able to answer those phones. And one of the things we learned was that we do not say like, oh, I've been through that before and this is how I handled it. And so many of us think that that's like the best way to handle something, to show that we're relatable, to show that you can get through it. But most often when somebody is in a point of crisis, their brain isn't able to work that way. They're in survival mode. And so when they hear that, they just think, well, this person was just able to get through it. And I, this is how I feel. I must be weak. I must suck at this. I, I must not be meant to be here, whatever it is. And it just creates a deeper spiral for them. And so the goal is is to actually get ask them the questions to remind them of a time when they felt differently, when they felt strength or or questions to remind them of their support system. But even that is not like, well, you must have a support system. You have sisters, blah, 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 because their natural reaction will be to resist. But instead, it's like, who did you call last time you felt this way? Oh, what did they say? Like anything to get them to kind of get out of that moment and into a different moment. And, and it's like creating that neural pathway themselves versus you laying down the bricks for them and saying, here, walk. Yeah, I think that that's a really profound example. And, and you're right. We do know from the research that when someone is really hurting, they don't want solutions. They just want to be held and seen. And we know that for other people, but I think the same is true for ourselves. So like when we're hurting and the brain goes to solution, solution, grow from this, find meaning, write a book because of this experience, that feels like so fake and contrived. So how would we support ourselves just like we would support someone else that's struggling is ideally we would just like create some space and acknowledge the suffering and hurt and remind ourselves that, hey, if we just can get to the other side of what feels like forever now, once we're on the other side, it might not feel that way. And I think for someone that is struggling, particularly with grief for mental illness, parts of what make it so hard is that the brain can play this trick on you where it feels like there is no way out and you'll feel like this forever. And I think that is often the most painful part. And if you can just remind yourself with like a half a percent of your awareness that actually it feels like forever now, but it won't in the future, and I don't know when that will be, but I just need to keep showing up to give myself a chance to get to the future. That's often the most powerful thing that you can do in supporting yourself or supporting someone else is just that practice of patience. I also like to think about the allowing the emotions to move through me. So often and so many people have this notion of strength as like just moving beyond it and and thinking about something else and I've learned from all of the people that I've interviewed, from books I've read, that those emotions get stuck in your body if you don't actually feel them and allow them to pass. And so it's like, imagine like a vein with blood flowing and then you just stop it. And you're like, nope, gotta write a book about this. And it's all just like sitting in there and we're like all on edge, writing the book, trying to help other people. And it's like, you didn't even allow yourself to fully experience that. 
you're trying to take meaning and and create some create something from your logical mind, but you're not allowing the full experience. You're not allowing yourself to change and adapt from that pain that you went through. And that's not to say to sit there and dwell in it and make the story even bigger and create suffering from that, but just understanding that that pain is a, is a part of the human experience. And it's going to make those moments of joy even if it takes a couple of weeks to get to, so much brighter because you've had this very contradicting <laughs> moment in your life, I should say. Yeah, and I think it is um, it is a very hard thing to do, but putting some words to it, I think helps people feel seen or, or maybe prepares people in the smallest way. But it's just that. It's like, how do you create space for emotions to move through you without dwelling on them or giving them more power than they need, but also without trying to distract yourself from them or repress them or make some kind of contrived meaning out of them. And just like find this middle way of like, this is, this is just a part of my experience now. And I don't want to give it more power than it needs, but I also don't want to try to make it go away because the worst thing you can do for a negative emotion is try to make it go away. It only comes back stronger. And just kind of like take it along for the ride. And I think that's it. I mean, we know from research on anxiety, it's the easiest thing to say. It's the hardest thing to do. But the best way to get rid of anxiety is to not care about the fact that you're anxious. To just like let anxiety be there and be like, oh, here's anxiety. Because you try to make anxiety go away and it gets stronger. But it's like this like really like challenging. Talk about a martial art of like wanting the thing to go away, but the way to get it to go away is by not wanting it to go away and just accepting and letting it be there. And I think this is why so many evidence-based therapies center around uh, radical acceptance is the first step. That reminds me of another Ram Dass story. He talks about the middle way and how Buddhism often will do that, where it'll say like, it'll take something mundane and answer it with something divine or vice versa. I think the example used was something like somebody will say like, well, what is God? And they'll say, it's a tree in the middle of a of a meadow or something. What's a tree in the middle of a meadow? It is God. And so it's always like the opposite instead of answering it with another mundane. But really, it's to get us to see kind of the difference between the the contrast of things, but then also the connection of everything and, and coming back to that middle way. So I love that. But I also love leaving listeners with something actionable, whether it's something to think about or something to practice this week to kind of ground this all into their existence. If you're going to leave them with one piece of homework, we should say, what would that be? Well, especially because we're heading into the new year, uh, I think it would be to spend some time reflecting on your core values your rugged boundaries, your sources of strength, the qualities that really make you who you are. Try to come up with like three or five. And in the book, there's like a list of 100 to, to, to get brainstorm starting, but um, I think that it's helpful to narrow them down because like it, it makes it more real. You have to prioritize. And then define those values. So if you came up with like presence, love, strength, compassion, that's great, but like what does that mean to you? Like in real concrete terms, and then try to get a level even deeper and say like, well, day to day, how do I live in alignment with this value? And what ends up happening is you get from like super lofty esoteric values like presence all the way down to I'm going to leave my phone in the garage during dinner because I know if it's in the house, I'll be a little bit restless or distracted. 
And then with those values, when things change, when you go through a cycle of order, disorder, reorder, when you're in the disorder phase, you can remind yourself of those values and you can ask yourself, I don't need to know what to do next. I just need to, as they say in AA, do the next right thing, which essentially means just keep acting in alignment with these values. And as long as I act in alignment with these values, regardless of the outcome, I can sleep well at night. I can look in the mirror and be proud. Well, thank you so much for all the research that you put into this book. There were the notes that I have on this book alone. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm like, how are we going to get to 105 pieces of things? So I know that there's so much that we didn't even have a chance to cover that listeners will love. So where's the best place for them to find you and your book? Well, thank you so much, Melissa. You did great. I feel like we covered um, a lot in this conversation, um, and yet it also is just the tip of the iceberg. So the book is called Master of Change, How to Excel When Everything is Changing, Including You. Uh, you can get it wherever you get books. So Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Bookshop, your local bookseller. If you prefer to listen to books, it's on audio, it's an ebook, it's hardcover, uh, pretty much everything you can imagine. And uh, the best place to find me on the internet is probably on Instagram, where my handle is just my name, at Brad Stahlberg. All the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 325. Your challenge for this week is to spend some time reflecting on your core values. We gave you a number of ways to find these values. And if you are a part of the Mind Love membership, there's actually a masterclass in there that'll walk you through finding your values as well. I come back to this exercise every couple years, and it's important to me because I want to feel really connected to my values. The first time I ever did them, it was eye-opening and life-changing. And then I waited too long to reflect back again, and they started to just feel like words on a page, which is something that Brad warns against. We want to continuously remind ourselves why they're meaningful, and sometimes it helps to go through and do all of the exercises, even if the outcome is the same, because you may have new reasons that connect you to each of these values. So let me know how it goes. And if you need some help or guidance, reach out to me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa. You can check out the membership at mindlove.com slash membership. We also have more exclusive episodes that have been coming out recently, if you haven't noticed, and there's some really exciting ones. So check that out at mindlove.com slash membership. You can also find all of my amazing sponsors at mindlove.com slash sponsors, plus some pretty incredible discount codes. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week.